voice that we can confess with all our hearts that his wounds, your son's wounds, have paid our ransom. And so because of that, Lord, as we open your word to have it proclaimed, heralded, announced in its native language, heralding, I pray, Lord, that you would tune our ears and hearts, which are naturally opposed to the gospel, that you would tune them so, Lord, that we would respond the way that sheep respond to the voice of a shepherd who has already given his life for them. Would you do that miracle in us? In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles 28. We'll be finishing the first book of Chronicles today, and we are coming to the end of King David's great reign, the greatest reign of the greatest king who has ever lived on the face of the earth. King David was called the shepherd of Israel. He was the shepherd that God used to lead his covenant people, the people who were the apple of his eye, the object of his affection. He was their great shepherd. And now we're at the end of David's great reign, and we're at the beginning of Solomon's reign. And through the reigns of these two men, David and Solomon, God is giving Israel a picture of the ideal Messiah, the ideal anointed king of Israel, the man to reign over Israel and give God glory and bring her the sweet blessings and promises which God in love had sworn to give her. God, through the reigns of David and Solomon, paints this picture of the ideal Messiah, the one that they would look for, keep their eyes peeled for. And I wonder if you noticed as we walk through the end of David's reign that it took two kings, the the reign of two kings, to give Israel the picture of their ideal king. You noticed that, didn't you? God split up the accomplishments between two men, David and Solomon. David reigns righteously, and he secures a place of peace for God's people. He creates peace. He establishes Israel. He establishes Jerusalem as the stronghold of protection and safety of Israel. And then Solomon then is to build the temple of God for the people of God. Solomon is to reign over that peaceful kingdom of rest. So the ideal Messiah was shoes too big to fill for even David. Too big for David. Yes, too big for David. And so the first people who are going to hear this particular book of the Bible, those to whom it was first written, were the Israelites, those few Israelites that returned from Babylon after 70 years of crushing exile. Why did this happen, they were thinking? Why did we lose our land? Why was the temple destroyed? We love the temple. And how can we avoid this same thing from happening again? What do we do now? 
because they were left without the gift that David provided. The towers and strongholds of Jerusalem, a safe place, freed and safe from the enemies of God's people and the reigns of wicked kings upon them. They were left without that gift from King David. Were also left, they were also left with the, without the gift which Solomon, King Solomon provided them, which was the gift of the temple. And now they're instructed to build both of those again. The walls of Jerusalem and the temple. And so this particular text, this book, these books you could say are answering the question, how did we lose those things and what hope do we have now? And so we are not the Israelites just returned from exile a few hundred years before Christ, but we too are living in a world of rubble of kingdoms that have fallen, where the stains of Adam's sin and guilt are very evident for us to see, where we have heard God's promises. In the midst of all this condemnation, we've heard God's promises of restoration and redemption and peace. And we too, like these returned exiles, ought to ask, while we're waiting for these promises, while we're waiting for redemption, living in a world of rubble, what do we do? What do we do? So that brings us to our first point, which is this. The charge to God's people. Follow the man of God's choosing. Follow the man of God's choosing. So what does the building of the first temple and the establishment of the glorious covenant with David, what does this teach those people who first returned from exile 400 years-ish later, when they're faced with an uncertain future and have been cut down to almost nothing, what are they to do when they have no strength, they have no glory, and they long for a glorious future? What do they do? They're to follow the man of God's choosing. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read First Chronicles, and we're going to read chapter 28. And we're going to read the first, uh, first eight verses. And then we're going to skip to the end of our passage today. And we're going to read the last verses of chapter 29. Or not the last ones, but a few, chapters, or first few verses from that. So, 1 Chronicles 28, 1 to 8. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that serve the king, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of the hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men and all the seasoned warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building, but God said to me, You may not. Build a house for my name. For you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader. In the house of Judah, my father, and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. 
He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he, continually, if he continues strong and in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that, he may, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Let's skip to 29.22. And they ate and drank before the Lord that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David king the second time, and they anointed him as prince for the Lord, and Zadok as priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the leaders of the, and the mighty men and all the sons of King David pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty that had not been on any king before him in Israel. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. The time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Then he died at a good age, full of days, riches and honor, and Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer with accounts of all his rule and his might and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. We'll stop there. And so the people of God now returned from, from exile 400 years after these events. They're, they're hearing the words that marked Israel's glory years. This is pinpointing Israel's glory years, and they're being reminded of that. The Lord had appointed a man to lead her and to care for her, and to represent her, and to lead her into the promises which God swore to give her. He had appointed a man. The people of Israel were to follow the son of David as he led them in obedience to the Lord. And so for the people at the end of David's reign, they need to know, who are we to follow? It was Solomon, son of David. 400 years later, the people returned from exile. That man was Zerubbabel, ancestor of David and Solomon. And though Israel was not free, though, he was the heir of the David throne. Yet though Israel was still under foreign rule, Zerubbabel was given the honor and ability to be governor, not king. But he was the heir to the David throne. He wasn't on a throne, but he was the heir to that throne, and he was the man of God's choosing for the returned exiles. So if you want to see the Lord's promises and the plans for his people, you look to the heir of the throne of David, the man of God's choosing. The temple is to be rebuilt, and the fortress and the strength of Jerusalem built up to withstand attacks, withstand attacks and disasters. Follow the son of David, Israel, the man of God's own choosing. Now, this 
brings us again our attention to the fact that God focuses his promises on a single man. That doesn't mean only a single man is going to inherit the promises, but he does focus those promises, and he makes promises of redemption. He focuses in on a single man. He selects a man to give his people sweet and serious covenant promises. Promises to forgive their sin. Promises to be their God. Promises to give them life, to bless them, to be their father, to give them peace and rest and security. Undeserved promises, undeserved love, grace, to treat them as only a godly son would deserve. And he focuses those promises on a man, a single man. Why? So that those promises can be found so that you know where to look when God fulfills his promises. And so he narrowed this down. And you see this as, as, as David is explaining this. He said, of course, he chose Israel, but then he chose of all the tribes of Israel, he chose Judah. David says this in our passage. And then from Judah, he picked my father's house, which is Jesse. And then from Jesse, how do we know which son? Well, the prophet said, no, not these sons, this son. It's David, the little one. And then from David, which son? It's Solomon. God selects and identifies that man so that his promises are easy to be found. When God keeps his promises, who do I want to be with? The son of David. Be with him. And if God's undeserved promises to sinful people are focused on a man of God's own choosing... It's essential to know where to look. And so the people of our text, in this events of our text in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, where are they going to look? Solomon. If you want to see God's promises come true, follow Solomon. God picked him. For the people of the returned exiles, where are they going to look? Zerubbabel. Look there. Follow the man, the, the son of David. And for us, it is the great and final son of David, the heir to his throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're longing for the redemption of the world, if we're longing for this place of rubble to be restored, if we're longing for sin to finally be removed and destroyed, if we're longing for redemption, where do we look? The son of David. Fix your eyes on the son of David. Redemption is to be found in him. And so the charge to them is the same as the charge to us. The charge to the people of God. Follow the man of God's choosing. Point number two. We've seen the charge to the people. Now the charge to God's Messiah. We've seen the charge to the flock. Charge to the shepherd. The charge to the God's Messiah, build the temple according to God's chosen plan. So the Messiah has a charge, the little M Messiah, right, Solomon. He's not self-appointed. He was appointed by God. And not only is he not self-appointed, he's also not operating with a job description that he himself made up. He didn't give himself the job description. People didn't give him the job description. He gets that from the Lord. His charge is clear, and it's given by the Lord. So let's look at 
29, verse 9, and we're going to see some of that. And you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord, your, know, the, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and for the Levites and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all the golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver vessels for each service, the weight of the golden lampstands and their lamps, the weight of gold for each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of silver for a lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lamp lampstand in the service, the weight of gold for each table for the showbread, the silver for the silver tables, the pure gold for the forks, the basins and the cups for the golden bowls, and, and the weight of each for the silver bowls and the weight of each for the altar of incense made of refined gold and its weight, also for also his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. All the work to be done according to the plan. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God and with you in all the work will be will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also, the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. Stop there. Now, the people may have wanted something different for any king. But Solomon's plan, or sorry, but God's plan for the Messiah was the one that peop the people needed most. Solomon was charged with reigning over Israel according to the law of God. Saw that? He was also charged with building the temple of God. And he was to do it by the plan chosen by God. Did you notice all the details? Could you read that and think that God was not concerned about the details and that the details were not in very precise detail given to Solomon? There was a plan. Here's your mandate. You have a charge. I tell you what, we would have built a different temple. Israel would have built a different temple. We would have imagined a temple that envisions a different kind of God or a different kind of relationship between God and man. Perhaps a temple that solves different problems, the ones that we think are more important to solve. In fact, that's essentially what all religions other than the gospel have done, isn't it? Create a temple that solves the problems that they think are the most important. Now, you might say, not every religion builds temples, and you would be right. However, what a temple tries to accomplish is essentially what a religion tries to accomplish, whether they use a temple or not. 
what, what did, it tells you what they think is the biggest problem of humankind is that needs to be solved. What is the problem between man and God or the creator or what is the biggest problem with humanity? And that's the temple they're going to design to fix the problem that they think is the problem. God assigned the Messiah of his people, the man whom God focused his redeeming work through, and he charged him with the tasks which God determined would meet what God believed were his people's greatest problems. Solomon was to build a temple designed by God to bring sacrifices, animals that would be killed, blood that would be shed, punished for his people's sin so they could enjoy the love and nearness of a holy God who loves righteousness so much that he hates and destroys sin. That's the problem that God's temple intended to resolve. And so when the final heir to David's throne came hundreds of years after Solomon and hundreds of years after Zerubbabel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the final heir of David, he did not come to do what the people of God had asked him to do. He didn't come to fulfill what they believed was their greatest problem, their, need is, their, their greatest uh, uh, need, and to solve what they believed to be the greatest problem. No, the Lord Jesus Christ, he came with a charge given to him from God the Father. John chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Skip to 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And after Jesus had given his charge, the plan that God had given him, the great and final Davidic Messiah, when he had announced that plan from the Father to the people, they rejoiced and said, that's the temple we wanted. That's the... No. 
they picked up stones to kill him. He came with a different charge than they wanted. But he fixed his eyes and face like flint to the cross. It was the charge, it was the plan that his father gave him, and he would not fail that charge. And just like his ancestor Solomon... He was in charge to build a temple for the Lord and for his people. But this temple would be more glorious. This temple is his body. His body is where the sacrifice for the people's sin would be made. It is the place where they would meet and enjoy and know the Lord in his holiness. The charge from his father was that the people, that all the people who the father gave to him, all the unworthy, condemned sinners, whom God had chosen in love before the foundation of the world. He would obey the law of God in, in their place, on their behalf. He would keep the law for them. And he would fulfill all righteousness for them, giving them his own righteousness so that they could be called holy. He would then also take their sins and, and their guilt upon himself while hanging on a cross. And on the cross bear the wrath of God, the hatred of God, the condemnation and damnation that God has towards sin, he'd bear that instead of his people. And then he would be raised from the dead on the third day. That was the charge that he received from his father. To gather, to die for, to save and hold sinners, to make them into a temple for the Lord their God that they would be the place where the Lord would dwell, where they would enjoy his holy presence and his great affection for them that was so great that while they were enemies, he died for them. Now, brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, our hearts would have cooked up promises that we would have believed to be better than that. But they are not better than that. We would have cooked up a charge for the Messiah, a mission that we would have believed to be better than the one he received from the Father. But thanks be to God, Jesus fulfills the charge that God gave him. And we are his people. If we turn from our sin and trust in what God the Father charged him to do, that is the gospel. What the Father charged the Son to do, if we trust in that we are his people. Now that brings us to our third point. Success will depend on a heart with undivided devotion to the first commandment. Success will depend on a heart with undivided devotion to the first commandment. When are we going to know that this ideal Messiah, this ideal shepherd has shown up? Well, he will be a man with an undivided heart and his people will also be given an undivided heart. Why did this take the Lord Jesus Christ? Why were the people of Israel in the time of exile still waiting for this ideal Messiah, perfect Messiah, to show up? And it's because the promise is de depended on an undivided heart. So let's go to chapter 29, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 19. 
And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom the Lord alone, so alone, whom alone God has chosen, is young and, young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the place will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood besides great quantities of onyx stones and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and Three, uh, 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for all the things of gold and, of sil and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses made their freewill offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and hundreds and of officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold. 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron, and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then all the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for, with a whole heart. They had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O our God, and praise you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, the, all this abundance that we have provided uh, for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and it is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I've freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the heart's of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may have, that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. These promises endured, but they did depend on an undivided heart. Now both the undivided heart of the man of God's own choosing, the Messiah, the little lamb, and of the people. So David prays that God would give Solomon an undivided heart. But if you remember in chapter 28, it says, if you seek God 
You'll be found by him. If you do not, you will be cast off. Now, the promise is going to endure. God's not going to rescind the promises of permanent glory and joy and rest and forgiveness. However, they were not going to be realized until a king with an undivided heart reigns over a people with an undivided heart. Until then, they were going to be, as David said, merely sojourners, refugees, staying temporarily in the land, longing for a better possession of land which could not be lost, longing for the Messiah with a pure heart so that they would have a permanent and unshakable inheritance. Now, the free will offerings, I wonder if you noticed that, it seems like this is God demonstrating what does an undivided heart look like. The Lord moves Israel here in a demonstration of what an undivided heart looks like. David gives riches to the temple, and then so does Israel follow after him. And the, what is unique about these offerings is that they got nothing out of it. There was nothing to gain for them by giving these things. They weren't the kind of offerings that paid for sin. So they weren't offering something to God to get forgiveness of sin back. They weren't the kind of offerings that would keep the Philistines away. God help us, here's the offerings. They weren't required. They didn't gain anything by giving them. Except the joy of glorifying the Lord. Except the joy of glorifying the Lord. These things were freely giving to the Lord. This is an undivided heart. It wasn't, I want it for God's glory, but also I kind of want him to give me something back. Undivided, pure devotion. The joy they got was the joy of honoring and glorifying God and enjoying his glory. So this gives a bit of a picture of what, of what an undivided heart is, 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 is going to look like. This is giving a picture of what the Messiah with the undivided heart is going to look like. And, heir, uh, and, and Solomon is the first of David's heirs. And before the end of Solomon's reign, he shows he does not have an undivided heart. His sin is so serious in God's eyes that it divides Israel into two kingdoms. Now Israel itself, forget their heart, they themselves are divided. And heir after heir after heir after heir after heir, string of son of David after son of David after son of David after son of David, a string of men with hearts divided. Now, actually, more often than not, these men did have undivided hearts, undivided in leading people against the Lord. There were some beautiful bright spots in Israel's history. If you follow through with Second Chronicles, some beautiful bright spots where the son of David leads the Lord's people in divided devotion to the Lord. But it made them long for the coming of that Messiah had an undivided heart. And it was, and, and, and after the Lord's patience had reached its full, it was during this time when Israel was going to be, uh, God sent prophets to Israel and said, you are going to be sent to exile. I'm going to punish you for your sin. He sent prophets to the people. He sent prophets to their, their little messiahs, their kings, and said, repent and follow me with an undivided heart. 
And when that was a sure thing, when they were definitely going into exile, that's when God turned up the promises of a coming Messiah, a coming shepherd, who would fulfill this command to lead God's people with an undivided heart and also to give them a new heart, to give them an undivided heart. That's when the Lord turned up the promises of the great and final Messiah who would lead with a pure heart, undivided, and give his people an undivided heart. So the people of Israel were to read these things and think, look to the son of David, O Israel. He is coming. That brings us to our fourth point, and that's this. Rejoice that the Lord's promise endures. Rejoice that the Lord's promise endures. So the Lord is replaying these events, as we've said, these overlapping the two greatest messiahs of Israel, David and Solomon. He's replaying these events for those returned exiles 400-ish years later. And so they're told to look to the man of God's own choosing. Look to the house of David. Look to the stump of Jesse, because this is where you're going to find that promise fulfilled. But what they could do, even though they realized why they had lost their land, because the Davidic kings had failed them, they could also rejoice, because after all of these failures, one king after another, after another, after another, after another, and the people too with their sin, over and over again, somehow that promise still endured. God kept that promise, even though the Davidic king failed. God didn't get rid of that promise. He prolonged it until the Davidic king with the perfect heart would arrive. And so the people could rejoice. And we see that this picture is given in 1 Chronicles 29, this picture of rejoicing, rejoicing in this promise, even though it's yet to be fulfilled. Remember, the people are eating and feasting before the temple's even built, but yet they're rejoicing as if it's already taken place. They're already celebrating the promise of God before it is fulfilled. So we're going to read this in chapter 29, 20 to 30. Then David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly, bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. They offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day they burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord that day with great gladness. We'll end there. The people feasted. We've already seen this in Chronicles. This is a big deal. When they say, when the Lord says his people feasted, he's meant to say joy and rejoicing in the presence of God, thinking of a dad putting on a meal for a family that he loves. They rejoiced that the Lord in that moment had given them hearts, in that moment which were undivided. Hearts that just loved the Lord and rejoiced in glorifying him. Brothers and sisters and unbelieving guests, the Lord's law in his first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and mind and strength. The Lord Jesus said that summed up the law. This sums up what righteousness looks like. This is what holiness looks like. And so, perhaps your hope in this world of rubble and chaos and despair and pain and 
a, a, a world mixed joy and grief. Perhaps your hope is in a man or a plan or political system or social philosophy that's going to restore all things. That's a foolish hope. Because the Lord calls us to hope in the man of his own choosing that's going to fulfill the plan of salvation, which is of God's own choosing as well. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the man with the perfect and pure, undivided heart. Perhaps your, heart, your, your hope is in your own righteousness. Maybe your hope is in your own love for the God who made heaven, the heavens and earth. But if that is your hope, that you love God, look at your own heart. Could you truly say that? No matter the righteous things that you've done, the changes you've made, the bad things you've not done, or maybe the things you've stopped doing, could you really say that your heart is undivided in love for the Lord your God? Because that's the standard which is holy in his eyes. That's the problem that God the Father came to or sent Christ to fix, to resolve. That's his charge. I'm going to give you a people who are weak and sinful and their hearts will be divided. They're guilty before me. And you will have to go on earth and take on flesh and you will have to live with an undivided heart in their place and you will die for your bride. You will be damned and condemned. You will be buried. That's the charge he received from his father. But his, and so we can rejoice because his heart is pure and our standing before the Lord will depend on his undivided heart, not on our undivided heart. So unbelievers, turn. Repent of the foolish hope that God doesn't require a pure and undivided heart because he does require it. Now repent of your hope that your own undivided heart will suffice because you know your heart is not undivided before the Lord in its love for the Lord. At best, you can maybe obey the Lord with a divided heart and so repent and believe. How much sweeter is it to stand before the Lord based on the undivided heart of Christ rather than whatever claim you have to having a sinless heart. What a gift when you stand before the Father and he asks you, where is that undivided heart that I required of you? What a gift to be able to point to Christ. There is the undivided heart. Judge me by his heart. Do not judge me by mine. I know I am an unworthy. And when Christ was raised from the dead, that was God's guarantee that he would accept that answer, that he would accept Christ's instead of yours. But the gift is even greater than that. We are saved because of Christ's undivided heart, but he also gives an undivided heart to his saints. Now, since salvation of God through Christ is by grace alone, something which our own obedience didn't bring about, then we're, we're free to offer true worship to the Lord. That's the kind of worship that that free will offering that we saw where the people are just giving freely. They're not required. They're just giving freely. That's the kind of worship that we can now give. 
Christ has satisfied all of the demands. And so now we can actually truly worship God with an undivided heart. With no like, I hope he gives back to me salvation. I'm not trying to earn his love. I'm not trying to pay off my sins. I'm not trying to impress God. Christ has already done that for me. Now I'm free to love God with a pure and undivided heart. With no hopes that he's going to pay me back. I can love God because he first loved me. God promised his Messiah would put a new heart in his people. And that means now that we have the ability to truly love God and worship him when he gives us his spirit, when we believe in him. That means we're now free to worship him truly and free. We can really love God in a way that we would not have been able to before. Oh, but we're going to struggle with sin. And so he gives us the power to repent to acknowledge where our heart is divided and call on God to forgive our sins and to restore a heart that is undivided. And this battle will endure, but it will not endure forever, brothers and sisters. This is a mark of a believer, a man who has had, or a woman who has had her sins paid for by the sacrifice of Christ, a a man or woman who's judged by the heart of God. This is the mark of being saved by grace, is that we long now for a pure and undivided heart. We hate the fact that we sin. We want to repent. We long to improve. We want to be sanctified. We want to be more holy. And the Spirit of God works that in us bit by bit, by a bit transforming us incrementally into the image of Christ our Savior. But that struggle will end one day when we stand before him face to face, that heart that we long for, pure devotion to God, not worshiping him to get anything out of it, but just to reply to his great love and affection for us. We love him now because he loved us first. Oh, but when we see him, that will be much sweeter than ever before because we will be fully restored in the final installment of his charge that he received from his father to die for his sheep, to collect them, to keep them, and to glorify them. He is the ideal shepherd. That David and Solomon's reign had to be combined together to even get a bit of a glimpse of. Israel was waiting until the time when her shepherd could finally say, it is finished. So unbelievers, throw yourself at the love and mercy and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ and make him your only hope. His heart to his undivided devotion to the Lord. Make that your only hope, not your own. And repent and believe in his sinless life, his death for sinners, and the resurrection from the dead. And brothers and sisters, Christians, rejoice. The long-awaited Messiah with a temple and glory and heart which make David and Solomon's pale in comparison. He's come for his sheep. He kept the charge given to him by the Father. So don't take your eyes off of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice. Along with Israel in the reigns of David and Solomon and the sweet gifts of affection and joy and 
and righteousness and peace that you gave them. Oh, Lord, there's so much of that that we are jealous of now, a, a land ruled with by the son of David in righteousness. But, bother, but, but Father, we, we are also grateful that that is not the limits. That was not the full mission and mandate and charge for the Messiah, the Son of David. We are grateful, Lord, that you had a higher standard, a higher goal, a sweeter joy for the people of the Messiah. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son while we were your enemies. Not great sheep, straying sheep who didn't even want to be rescued. Hearts not even divided, hearts that were, divide, were, were, were singly devoted to not loving you. And yet while we were thus, you sent your son to be our shepherd, the good shepherd who died for his sheep. So Lord, as we wait for the final installment, the full reign and accomplishments of the son of David. While we wait, Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who follow the man of your choosing. Just not a pastor, not a politician, not a king, not a celebrity, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. So fix our eyes on him. Let us gladly follow his commands. Gladly hope in his promises, no matter how foolish we look to the world around us. Let him be glorified for being our shepherd and let us rejoice that we are his sheep. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen.